0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. So whether you are pouring yourself a cup of tea and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. We hope this episode will challenge your thinking and encourage your heart. With that, here's today's conversation. It has certainly been quite the Lenten season. It's probably the Lentiest Lent I can remember. And so it seems that the realities of shame, isolation, and suffering are certainly more acutely felt and certainly more widely felt. Uh, All of us are suffering in some way or the other. And so it seemed a fitting time to tackle the topic that we're going to address today on redeeming shame and believing a truer story about who we are and our place in this world. And it's hard to imagine someone more fitted, more expert or more entertaining than my guest today, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a practicing clinical psychiatrist. He's also the founder of Being Known, which helps explore and promote understanding of the connections between neurobiology and Christian spirituality, as well as the author of two fantastic works, The Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you
1: it's lovely to be here. Always a delight to hang out with you and uh, to be part of this gathering.
0: Let's just dive right in and begin at the very beginning with what is shame? How would you define it?
1: Well, the question gets asked a lot, what is it? And I would say that most importantly, it's not so much a thing that we define. I mean, we can try to do that, but... In some respects, everybody in our audience, I think, has a sense of what we're talking about. We all kind of know it in the sense that we feel it. We've had experiences with this. I usually talk about it though, in terms of how we describe what actually happens to people. The first thing that we say is that shame primarily is not just an abstract thing that happens out in the you know ether. It is a it is a thing first and foremost that we feel neurophysiologically. It's a it's an affective state. It's something that I feel in my chest and my face and my hands. Uh, My body has a response to it. Now, of course, it's coming in response to some kind of encounter that I've had with someone else. And the essence of what that neurobiological and relational exchange really amounts to, if I were to put words to it, would be this sense that there's something terribly wrong with me. There's this felt sense that I'm not enough, that I'm bad. We like to say the difference between shame and guilt is that guilt is that I've done something bad. Shame is that I am bad. And we have dozens of different ways in which this takes shape. If we think shame is just an abstract thing that happens in our cognition, something that we think, part of the challenge with that is then we just assume that if we feel ashamed or if someone else feels ashamed, we can just tell them, well, you shouldn't feel that. You you, you don't need to be ashamed and we all know what that's been like someone can tell us that and that doesn't keep that from happening because it's not just like learning a new fact oh three times two as it turns out isn't five it's really six. Oh, great now i know that i don't have to be ashamed because i have the right math equation which is why it's so important for us to be aware that the healing of shame really requires the presence of other people in our lives not just the Uh, offering of new facts.
0: You mentioned the physicality of shame. What's actually going on at a a neurobiological level when we feel this sense of, of shame?
1: Well, one of the things we like to talk about that happens when newborns come into the world, as we like to say, every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her, looking for him. And that desire to see and be seen is all wrapped up in what we call the social engagement system. The social engagement system is a series of neural networks in the brain that are immature and underdeveloped when we are born. And it requires our interaction with other human beings to strengthen that social engagement system. It runs on the rails of a particular set of neurons. But that social engagement system's intention is to help us regulate our emotional states. So when a newborn is upset, distressed, mom and dad come to her, come to him and comfort him. And that social engagement system is activated and gets the sense that, oh, when I'm in distress, when I cry out, I'm gonna have that distress regulated by the presence of someone else. I don't have to learn to do that by myself. When we are in trouble, when I don't have access to someone else, I then default to, when we are afraid, we move to what we call our fight or flight systems. We default to that. And if we then default Beyond that, if we can't flee or fight our way out of things, we then tend to completely leave the social engagement system and we end up running on a bunch of neurons where shame really shows up and these neurons put us in a position where physiologically a couple of things happen. Number one, I tend to distance myself from other people. The felt sense, we've all had that sense of when we feel ashamed, we don't want to look at somebody, we don't want them to look at us. So I literally will turn my face away. So there is an almost automatic involuntary turning away from you. But I also am turning away within my own mind. In other words, in the same way that I'm disconnecting from you, I have different parts of me within me, literally. The parts of my brain that represent what I think, what I feel, what my body's doing, all are running their separate ways. And so I can't function as an integrated whole. One of the other important things about this is that those particular neural networks that activate when shame is on board, when they are turned on, it's very difficult to then get them turned off. There are some neurons that we say are myelinated, they're thicker, they run more flexibly, we can turn them on and off, on and off pretty easily, these are the neurons that my social engagement system operates on so that I can be even connected to you, you can be angry with me, and I can still be connected to you because the anger, we can turn that on, we can turn that off because the relationship holds that, the relationship contains that, I can be okay with that. Shame isn't like that. Shame runs on the rails of neurons that are non-myelinated. Once you fire them, you can't flexibly readapt them very, very quickly. And so we've all had the experience of having some kind of engagement with someone where we feel ashamed, and maybe we've done something that we feel bad about, we feel guilty about, we we need to go and apologize, and we do. And our friend says, I completely forgive you. And you feel better, but like two hours later, you're thinking about what you did, and you feel bad all over again. And we say, well, I still feel guilty. We would say, no, that's not guilt you're feeling that's really shame that is still this, this residue that sticks around and sticks around and sticks around because of the very nature of how our neurobiology is formatted. And so this whole sense of turning away and the length with which shame tends to stick around is significant because it really means that in order for my shame to be healed, in my turning away, I'm going to need you to come find me. I'm not likely to come find you and say, hey, I'm having trouble with my shame Could you please help me with that? No, because I'm too ashamed to tell you that I'm ashamed. But if you see that in me, if you know that that's taking place in me, I'm going to need you to come find me. And I think this is why, when we read in the scriptures, shame and sin show up so frequently running together in the texts. And it's not surprising that the God of the Bible is a God who has to come and find us because we are not going to be ones who actually go and find him, at least not the God of the Bible that we, you know, I'm I'm happy to like make up my own idols and go find them. I'm not likely to go find the Jesus that we find in the gospels without him coming to find me first.
0: One of the things I noticed when reading or rereading your excellent book, Soul of Shame, if people have not read it yet, uh, definitely get it, was it it struck me, especially for these times, you compared uh, shame to being viral in nature. Uh, We all have viruses on the mind. In what way is shame viral in nature?
1: Well, one way, you know, I, I think it's really telling that we we live in a time where uh, with modern medicine, we, we hear about things called viruses and bacteria, and we believe they're out there in the world, but we can't really see them. And we are now at a point, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are being brought face to face with this reality that you can be in the presence of someone and they transfer something to you. You have no idea that it's happened. And somewhere in the next four to 14 days, you find yourself being ill and you have no idea how did that possibly happen? I think shame is this way in the sense that it is subtle. It is silent. Evil uses it in a way to make sure that it's not promoting itself in the process. If, as Lewis would have said, evil's intention is to devour us, it has no need for notoriety, it has no need to be noticed in the process, it just wants all beauty and goodness to be gone. Viruses are carried by vectors, right? They are carried through the air, they're carried by insects, they're carried by a whole range of different ways, this one in particular, through droplets as we're learning it comes to us in ways that we aren't paying attention. And in the same way, shame operates very much virally in this way. It is passed on through the vector most of the time through nonverbal communication. We know that the most powerful ways that we communicate with each other are through our tone of voice, our eye contact, so forth and so on. This viral experience of shame begins, believe it or not, as early as age, about 15 months of age infants can start to pick up and sense it in the parent's tone of voice, in the way that they handle a child, in the way that they see the parent looking at them. These things are taking place at very early ages in ways that we wouldn't ever suspect it's taking place. And so we have all kinds of experiences then in our lives in which two things take place. One is we experience shame and we don't know that that's what it is. Number two, we actually shame others and we don't know that that's what we're doing. And of course, someone might say, well, gosh, that really hurt my feelings. Well, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. What are you talking about? As I roll my eyes at you. And in the process of doing, I just repeat what it is that I've just done. And so I think from the standpoint of it being so silent and subtle, and therefore something that we are kind of disconnected from and not very aware of ourselves, that we are either receiving or transmitting to others, is part of why I think that metaphor, at least for me, seems to be helpful.
0: So we titled this talk, Redeeming Shame. And you know, one question that comes to mind is, is shame ever necessary, appropriate, helpful? Mm-hmm. I mean, you distinguish mm-hmm. between shame and guilt, but is shame the proper response to wrongdoing and sin?
1: It's a great question, and my mind immediately goes to St. Paul's words in Second Corinthians chapter 7, in the 10th verse, where he writes, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance, and there is an ungodly grief that leads to death. Our problem with shame is not so much its existence. Our problem is how we respond to it at any given time. If I do certain things, shame, in fact, is the proper response. That would be a normal thing for me to experience in wake of me having done something that was shameful. The question, what do I do in response to that? We would say that we get our model from this right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 3, where you have the first couple who are huddled in their shame, covered themselves, hiding in the woods, and God comes to find them. And they have a really hard time responding to him. Adam can't answer his question in a straightforward fashion, and neither do we tend to do that. Jesus came and did the same thing. He's asking questions. And we have a hard time responding to this without our shame itself kind of doubling back and entering into the conversation and changing the nature of the conversation. And so I think that when we talk about it, it's healing, when I feel ashamed, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, like, I'm not looking forward to going to somebody and telling them, like, I really screwed this up. It's not my idea of a good time. I don't know anybody who is, but with practice, we learn that if I have enough experience with people who are going to come to find me and say, tell me what, tell me what's going on. I'm saying like, I I can barely talk to you because I'm so ashamed. And to have them say, I'm not leaving the room. You tell me what you want to tell me. I'm not leaving the room. This is what God is trying to tell Adam and Eve. This is what God is telling us. In John's Gospel, in the Synoptic Gospels, this is what Paul tries to write to us. When he says, I'm not leaving the room, no matter how bad it gets. It's only with practicing in those contexts are we giving God the opportunity to heal shame in order for us then to be recommissioned to be creators of goodness and beauty. One of the things that I tell people is like, look, Evil's intention is not just to make us feel bad. I mean, I feel bad when I'm ashamed, but that's not its ultimate purpose. Its ultimate purpose is that when it gets its tentacles around me, it keeps me from creating. My intended purpose as a human being, I was made to make things. We were made to create. And so bear the image of our creator by creating. And beauty is anathema to evil. Shame keeps me from creating. So it's not just that I feel bad. In my feeling bad, I am paralyzed. I am, I'm made to be static in order that I can't create. It is in the coming to find us that God doesn't just make us feel better. He doesn't just forgive our sin. He says, now it's time for us to revisit what was intended from the beginning. And that is for us to be in the business of creating outposts of beauty and goodness in whatever domain of life that we occupy.
0: Yeah, one of the things I thought was so fascinating about your book is uh, the way you talked about not only the link between shame and creativity and vocation, uh, but also between shame and storytelling. And the way shame affects our understanding of our own story as well as distorting our understanding of the big story. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about the link between shame and storytelling and our understanding of ourselves and the, the world around us?
1: Sure. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, a number of years ago, we had our first meeting. And as is the case as a psychiatrist, in an initial evaluation, I'm asking a whole range of different questions. And one of those was, could you please tell me what it was like growing up in your home? And the words that came out of his mouth were, I grew up in a really loving Christian family which of course, as we know, is code for, well, life kind of sucked, but I can't really say that publicly. The next question that we ask is, well, can you tell me anything about some of the details of that history, including we, we talk about things like who was in charge of discipline, not your common conversation topic at a cocktail party, but nevertheless, we go there. And in the course of his recalling that, he was able to say, well, as it turns out, my mother needed to be in charge of discipline because anytime my father got involved, my father who was a deacon in the church, things quickly became quite brutal because he had an older sibling, a brother, who was kind of always on the outs with his dad. And whenever there was trouble between his brother and his dad, things got violent in the house. Now, what's striking to me is I pointed out to him, I said, gosh, help me understand how the story that you tell me about your life in your home is that I grew up in a loving Christian home. When the fact is that it it is not to say that his parents weren't believers or that they they didn't love God. It's not about, we're not throwing anybody under the bus. But what we're saying is, here's a person who tells his story in a certain way in order for him to cope with his life, in order for him to make sense of like, how am I gonna get through my day? And then somebody asks me, well, what's your family like? Well, like, who wants to say, well, my dad, who was a deacon in the church, actually was a real brutal guy in the house. Like, who? Like, no, it's too embarrassing even. So I don't. Instead, I develop, over many decades, ways of sharing my narrative with people that include things that aren't true and exclude things that were true, because shame is at work shaping that narrative. And there are two things then that happen. In the course of that, I collect a whole series of wounds, traumas, emotional distress that never gets repaired, but that my brain does not forget. And consequently, I have to burn energy containing all of that. And then the second thing is I don't get to use that energy. I don't get to access that energy to then create in the way I was made to create. I don't learn how to tell my story truly, how to be able to say, my life had its moments where things were really tough and have healing and God and the community around us come to say, gosh, even in the face of that story, you need to know we're not leaving the room. We want to hear more about that. And the more I can then tell the truth about that story, tell that story more truly. And in this way, we don't say just more according to the facts. We mean to say, tell it in its faithful fullness That includes the faithful telling of the gospel, that includes the faithfulness of Jesus being in the kitchen when your dad was losing his temper with your brother, and you were the witness of all this brutality, not knowing what to do. Nobody came to you to talk about, like, well, what was that like to watch your dad throw your brother up against the kitchen wall? The point being that we find all kinds of ways to end up distorting the telling of our story, which, of course, is exactly what happened in the third chapter of Genesis, when the evil one begins by distorting the way the story is told, the one that Adam heard compared to the one that he wanted to tell Eve and Adam in that particular time frame. As we are with each other and as our uh, experiences are healed, we're able to tell our stories more truly. And again, not just because we include facts that we've excluded, but because we are also seeing it in the way that includes the narrative in which God is coming to find us in real and embodied ways, not just as abstract notions of what we read in an old ancient text, but how that happens right here and now between you and me, and that I can believe that God's coming to find me because I'm hearing him in your voice, seeing him in your gaze and so forth.
0: So you're talking a bit about telling our story. And of course you named your institute the Being Known Institute. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why you chose that name, how we come to be known, and presumably that involves more than just us telling our story. That involves someone hearing our story and understanding our story. So how, how are we able to not only be known, but to know others?
1: Well, you know, it was, it, was, it was Calvin himself, John Calvin himself, who said, we can't really know God unless or until we know ourselves, which I think is kind of odd coming from that cat. I mean, but I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to hear someone no less than him say those words. And, you know, one of the things that we know from uh, human development and interpersonal neurobiology is that uh, no one knows who they are by themselves. I don't know the depth of the context of my story unless I can hear someone else hear me, tell that, and then ask me important questions or add reflections to that. And in that sense, we are reflecting, I think, what we read in Paul's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first couple of verses, where he says, you know, there are those who believe that they know, who do not know as they ought, but the person who loves God is known by God. Notice he doesn't say the person who loves God knows God, but the person who loves God is known by God. This notion of being known has as much to do with my willingness to reveal myself to you and to have you receive that. And in your reception of me, there are things about me that I discover that I otherwise can't know. I don't know that I'm lovable if I don't reveal to you the parts of me that I think are very much not lovable and to have a very different encounter with you than the one I was expecting. And so I come to know things In the process of being known i can love god primarily because i've had the experience of being known by him because jesus has shown up and said i know these things about you and i'm not leaving the room and for me to hear him continue to come for me in the face of all that i know to be true about myself it opens me to things that i didn't know which is that i'm lovable in that sense of being loved which is a two-way street i can then ask him things. I can then ask the other things. I then can be curious about the other. And it is in this give and take of revealing our most vulnerable selves and having those selves received. And and mind you, it doesn't mean that we're never corrected. It doesn't mean that I just get to tell you whatever I want and whatever I want is where things are going to go. There are going to be plenty of what father loves his son who does not discipline him. There are plenty of times when I need to hear someone else ask me hard questions. I need to hear somebody else tell me, gosh, Kurt, when you said that, it really hurt my feelings in order to reveal to me that there are other things about me that I may not like, but that need to be corrected. But I'm not likely to get to a point where I can reveal that to you if before now I've worked really, really hard to make sure that other things about my life never get revealed to you. In that process of being known, again, I would say that the thing that it does most, um, more than anything, is that as I am known by the other, so I'm known by God and I love God, as I'm known by you and I love you, I'm also opened to wanting to create with you, with God, with others, in my marriage, with my children, with my friends, in my community, recognizing that it is in that vulnerability, in that nakedness of Genesis chapter two, In the absence of shame, but in God's confident presence, that new creation is made possible. And in fact, I can even begin to imagine new things that I would want to make, precisely because I'm no longer shackled by the energy that I'm burning, just trying to contain all the shame in my life.
0: You're just in the process of doing some of the research for our our talk today. Uh, I came across an article and the author was talking about, essentially, if you want the rewards of being loved, you have to subject yourself to what he called the mortifying ordeal of being known. And I wanted to talk about that. Is being known, is there an aspect of a mortifying ordeal to it?
1: Well, I can give you an example. In our practice, we have developed over the last several years what we are calling confessional communities. To the outside world, they'd be known by any other name as group therapy. But we call them confessional communities for explicit reasons, and it's not just about confessing what's wrong. To confess is to name that which is true. It's about telling our stories more truly. And one of the things that we continually find is that when when a person is speaking to another group of six or eight people in the room, there there are going to be plenty of moments in which someone reveals something. And the very act of putting language to this thing that I feel forces me to look at it in the moment. And in that moment, it is somewhat mortifying. There is a sense in which what I'm doing is putting to death my insistence on not revealing myself to you. Moreover, there are plenty of moments when people will make what we call bids for intimacy. In other words, I might say to another person or one of the patients might say to another patient, gosh, I really get that. Or they might say, I'm just really impressed with how hard you're working on this particular thing. And very quickly, many of these folks who of course are working really hard to be good workers will deflect the compliment, right? They will want to move away from that. They will want to say, Oh, it's it's really, I'm, you know, I don't I haven't done very well. And in that moment, we will pause and draw, of course, even though they're trying to like get the attention away from themselves, we're gonna like bring it right back to them and say, We notice that you're deflecting attention from yourself. How does it feel now? And there is this sense in which the very deflection of attention is a way for me to put a pause on your attempt to be closer to me. Because there's a part of my mind that says, You know, I'm okay with you being right where you are, but if you get one step closer and then one step closer and then one step closer, I don't even know what it is about me, but there's going to be something that you're going to find. And then you're going to go, or it is activating old neural networks that remind me of what it was like to live in my house where my father was a brutal cuss and it frightens me. And I don't want that kind of intimacy that resistance, is indeed, that notion of being known in that way does put me in a position of having to mortify, having to put to death my pattern of invulnerability, my pattern of not telling my story truly as a way to protect myself from the outside world. Um, But what we are doing, I believe, in these communities and in any places where we are being known in this way, that we are, like St. Paul says, we are putting to death the old man and woman. This is an act of mortification as a way that in the very same moment opens the door to the work of the Holy Spirit to rush in and say, I am so glad that you're here. I cannot wait for the next good, beautiful thing that you and I are gonna to make together.
0: There's so much I could ask. We're gonna to turn to audience questions in just a second. But before doing so, we're, we're in the midst of surreal times where we have to isolate ourselves from each other to a certain extent for the other's well-being. But even before coronavirus, in many ways, we were in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness and alienation. Uh, We're expecting 60,000 people this year, possibly more, to die of COVID. But over the past few years, around 55,000 people have died from opioid uh, overdoses, and 45,000 people have died from suicides. And it it seems like this is part of what the church is here for. And as someone who often deals or meets with people individually, what suggestions would you give parishioners, the body of Christ, to essentially to reach out in a way that Mm -hmm. mirrors the way God has reached out to us?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two weeks ago, I posted an essay that offers a list of, there's about 13 concrete items that people can begin to practice that I think are really helpful, you can go to kurtthompsonmd.com and you can find it under the resources um, page. Mm -hmm. I would say that there are uh, two or three things that I think that are are pertinent for us. One is that the virus is not just causing, but it is revealing our anxiety. Um, Our anxiety has been around for a long time. I mean, it's ancient. Jesus talked about it. It's not a new thing, but... Our anxiety, and I think I would say our shame even collectively is no small part of how we have found ourselves in this place of great loneliness over the last you know, couple of decades, both therefore being you know, exemplified by the opioid crisis and the suicide rate and so forth. I would say then for our listeners, as much as it might seem somewhat old hat, Uh, One of the first things I would say that's important is that it's really important for us to be immersing ourselves in scripture, in prayer, and in worship. There's no substitute for this. And those are hugely important. If you're like me, I find that you think, oh, I'll just be at home now and I'll see patients, you know, on a virtual platform. I'll have all this extra time. And, of course, everybody is discovering, A, that you have actually even less time, it seems like. And so where's the time going to come where I'm going to commit to being immersed. And I would say it is necessary to commit the time. That's number one. Another thing to bear in mind is that one of the most powerful things that we can do to actually contend with our own internal sense of aloneness and anxiety is for us to take steps to contact other people. One of the suggestions I offer is to make a plan to contact one or two, two or three people a day in which you have a five minute phone call or a five minute video chat. It doesn't have to be for 30 minutes or an hour, but contacting someone in which you're not only asking them how they are, but you are also telling them how you are. Those kinds of things go a long way, not just because I have an experience of connection with you in the moment, but if I know that we're gonna connect again in another three or four days or in a week, even if it's only for five minutes, that actually allows my brain to anticipate connection, which also reduces anxiety. It reduces my sense of being left alone. And so oddly enough, when we feel alone, it is the time when we are least likely to want to reach out to others. And it is at the very time when it will be most helpful for us to do that. But for those of us who aren't in the middle of that, I would say, uh, imagine one person that you could, you can say like, I wonder how Sean's doing. Pick the phone up and call. Don't text Sean and say, Sean, can I call you? Pick the phone up and call Sean. Pick the phone up and call your relative, you're this person, you're that person. And those, it, it seems so small, but at a time in which right now as human beings, we are asking ourselves to do things that we absolutely were never made to do. We were not made to live in this kind of isolation. We're already, you know, two, three weeks ago when this specter was really starting to emerge, for what it was going to be for us in the in, in the in the U.S., anxiety was the primary thing that people were feeling, and already I'm seeing the next wave of this in people, which is the wave of irritability, right? And the irritability is like people are sick of doing this, like it was all fun and games for a two week like pretend, like you know, like if we had a big snowstorm, we're gonna do it. But now, mm-hmm. I you know I love my wife and my kids. I but what am I going to do if I have to keep living with them? So because we don't have any way to like rhythmically come and go and come and go and interact with other people, which brings richness back to our own space. So again, I th- there are other other concrete things that we can do. Immersion in the scriptures and prayer, particularly contemplative prayer work that allows our mind to be in the present moment, connecting with others, limiting your news feeds, mm-hmm. refusing to scroll on your social media, getting to bed at a recent time turning your screens off an hour before you go to bed, making sure that you're getting out for a couple of five-minute walks every day. You don't have to go for a 45-minute walk. Go for two five-minute walks around the block. And then I think in our consumptive way of, of approaching gathering for worship that we have in the West, it'll be even easier for us to not connect on a weekly basis. I would say there's no more important thing that we're doing there as well to make sure that at least once a week we are virtually in some way, shape, or form gathering with a body of believers to hear the words spoken, to share often even in, you know, preparing a Eucharistic meal for us to be, you know, sharing together, even if we're disconnected over we're you know over space. Those are some things I hope that our listeners would find to be helpful.
0: Oh, that's great. The most popular question includes what are some practical and healthy ideas for helping supporting someone else when it's clear that they are dealing with a great deal of shame?
1: Well I think that you know our our common practice is often we hear someone's story we hear them talk about them being ashamed of something and then we want to give them the reasons why they shouldn't be and that that's you know that would be my left brain trying to talk to your left brain to give you the facts and the challenge is that it's not our left brains that are really involved in this it's our right hemisphere that senses things it feels things that incorporates things in my embodied state, right? We said that shame's a neurophysiologic event before it's anything else. And so one of the things that we can do when people are ashamed is so like, tell me more about that. Tell me what that's like. And to be able to validate that. And by validating it, I don't mean that we are validating that they should be ashamed. We're validating their experience. We're saying, gosh, it makes sense that shame is what you might feel in the middle of this. And even when it doesn't make sense to us, as we like to say in our business, Everybody's story, everybody's story, always eventually makes sense. We just simply need more information. There are plenty of times when somebody will say, gosh, I'm so ashamed of this, and you're like, what the heck? Like, there's nothing to be ashamed about. Like, why are you ashamed? That just, like, you shouldn't be ashamed. Shame on you for feeling ashamed. What we what, what we really wanna do is to be more curious about where that shame is coming from, and to be able to say to them, like, I get, I, I completely understand how you could feel that way. I just want you to know, that I'm not feeling ashamed of you, and at the end of our conversation, if you're still feeling it, we can keep talking about it. It's important to know, nobody ever argued somebody out of shame. You help heal people's shame by being present with them in the middle of their shame. It is allowing them to feel their shame, and at the same time, having them pay attention to you paying attention to them, and you're not ashamed of their shame. You're not ashamed of their story. You're not ashamed of their presence. And you think, gosh, Kurt, that doesn't really solve the problem nearly as quickly as I'd like to solve it, because I might have to come back and like talk to him again. Because when someone is ashamed and we feel overwhelmed by their shame, we want to fix that, I get anxious because if I can't fix this problem, now I'm ashamed that I'm not enough to be able to be helpful for this person. And this is what we meant earlier on when we said, look, evil is going to use this with every opportunity it gets. And it will be subtle. It will be silent. It will be in the smallest of ways which is why it is not our job to heal anybody else's shame. We are called to be present. We are called to delight in others. We are called to say it's really hard when we can't get rid of our shame. It's really hard to do that. It's hard for me to be able to say to somebody else, like I can relate to that because here's a story about my life where I still have a hard time telling my shame attendant to be quiet. I still have a hard time with that. And the less alone another one feels themselves to be, the more difficult they are to entertain shame in the first place. And so even as just friends, being with friends, I think those are some of the more concrete things that we can do to be helpful, recognizing that we're going to do this over a lifetime. This is not going to be one-stop shopping.
0: So this next question is a very practical one. How do we parent and sometimes discipline without shaming our kids?
1: You know, as a parent of two adult children, my wife and I on occasion, we will talk about the number of times that we've done things, that if we could rewrite the script and do them over, you know, ways, moments when we've shamed our kids. And, and we know that anytime that we're shaming our kids, you know, we say, we shame people out of our own shame. That's where it comes from. I give people what I have. And I think that, so, so truly, one of the things to, to bear in mind as parents is to be relieved of the burden of thinking, gosh, I, I, I need to make sure that I never shame my kids. Somehow I should never be in a position where that happens. It may happen. But what kids need are two things from us as parents. The first thing they need is for us to be doing the work on our part, for us to be doing our work on our story. Because if I'm going to discipline my kid and shame is not going to be part of that, the only way that's going to happen is if I'm doing the work on my story where shame lives and lurks and will want to show up in my parenting. I'm not going to shame my kid because of what my kid has done. I'm going to shame my kid because of what I haven't done about my own story. And so that would be the first thing. The second thing is to recognize that it is as important that we repair ruptures with our children as it is that we parent perfectly in the first place. We tell parents, look, kids don't need you to be perfect. They need you to be present and they need you to be willing to repair ruptures. That's what they really need you to be able to do. And in the course of that, one of the things that a kid is gonna, is, is gonna experience, they are gonna experience a parent coming to them and saying, you know, yesterday when I said this or did this, I saw the look on your face and I can imagine that you were pretty ashamed because uh, later I thought about that. I felt like there's just no way I should have done that. And I need to let you know that what you were feeling had nothing to do with what we were talking about. It had to do with what I was not doing well enough as your dad. I need to be able to own that in order for my son or my daughter at some point to recognize that when shame enters the room, the world is such that healthy relationships operate in a way that whoever is responsible for the shame is going to own that. And what this means is that they learn to grow up in relationships in which ruptures do get repaired. And that means that they will be set on a course as they head into the world that they're going to live in with the expectation that this is how relationships work, that they're not going to be relationships in which there are no ruptures. When we, and, and you know most ruptures involve shame in some way, shape, or form. To own the rupture, to say, this is what I've done wrong, and this is what I need to apologize for, would you please forgive me? That really gives us a way of recognizing shame as being a thing that is separate from me. I felt bad, not because I am bad, but because it was a feeling that happened because of this interaction. I can separate that and so be less likely to incorporate it as just the story about who I am. And so I can tell my story more truly from the beginning.
0: So our next question from an anonymous attendee asks, what does it mean to give my shame to Jesus? And what can I do when I'm feeling shame to help me let Jesus hold my shame?
1: It's a great question. I mean, like it, it goes back to, you know, give it all to Jesus. Right. What the heck does that mean? Like, I have no idea. Like, he's not in the room. Like, what am I going to give to him? Like I could give him a loaf of bread. Oh, like, how am I going gonna getting my shame? Like, I have no idea. But this, this really tells us that it reminds us of the, you know, the early church, the early church did not have some sense of just imagined abstract notion. This guy, the early church for them, the act of the Holy spirit with each other was the act of the body of Christ. Paul's language of that. We are the body of Jesus for us now, 2000 years ago, it becomes like this rather helpful, maybe metaphor, but we don't think of it in real terms. Yes. If I think I like, I I can agree with that theologically that I am the hands and feet and voice of Jesus, but like, do I really believe that when I walk in the room that I literally am Jesus walking in the room and I don't mean Jesus in his unique state, but like I am the body of Jesus here. How many people do we, do we say like, gosh, if you were to walk in the room do you believe that you are in fact as illuminating as jesus claimed you to be in matthew 5 you are the light of the world you're absolutely illuminating i can't believe how people's lives are going to be different today because you're in them like this is not what i hear when i hear you're the light of the world i hear you're the light of the world don't screw it up but when i take my shame to jesus i have to wonder well what would it be like for me to take my shame to Cherie? What would it be like for me to take my shame to my good friends? My good friends, Jerry and Byron and Neil and Rich. I'm like, What would it be like for me to, like, to literally to name my shame in the presence of another? This is what we actually mean. We mean in real embodied ways. And so what would it be like for you to imagine, and this is, this is the kind of prayer that we don't often enter into but is deeply necessary for us, Formational prayer. What is it like for us to take time and practice imagining that we are standing by the tree where Jesus walks and finds Zacchaeus in it? Looks up, says to him, "I'm going to your house today." Turns and looks at you and says, "You're coming with me." Can we imagine what that's like? Oh wait, are you? And you're you're looking over your shoulder to see because he, surely he's talking to somebody else, but he wants to say, "No, I want you to tell me what it's like for you to be you." Do we imagine telling him our story? And in so doing, can we imagine hearing his voice, seeing his eye gaze, and allowing that to be the way in which we are known by him? So how do we do that? If I can't do it with the story of this man in the Gospels, then who are the people in my life who are providing embodied presence— where in which I'm going to tell you my story as truly as I can. And if I can't do that, I'm going to need you to help me do that even more truly. And in so doing, you know, it becomes Good Friday for me. We, 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 I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, that we are doing this on Good Friday is so apropos this, this notion that there's no day of the Christian calendar that more effectively speaks to us and says, God is not afraid of our shame. In fact, he is going to be stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, hung on a stick, and it's not going to be 30 yards away on a cross that's 10 feet tall. It's going to be eight feet tall, sitting right by the side of the road. And there we are walking by, seeing Jesus right up front, close, personal, in ways that would be most uncomfortable. And he's saying, I know what it's like to be you, and I'm not leaving the room. And so for our for our questioner, we would say, I want to know who the people are that you're going to allow to be in your life. Such that when it comes to answering the question, how do I give it to Jesus? You would would name them and you would say, how are you going to give it to them? And that's how we answer that question.
0: So we have a lot of questions left. And for the last one, what i want to do is actually read two to you and let you kind of answer them both at once. They're somewhat related. So Michael in Denver, Colorado asked, what does it look like to position ourselves so that others, quote, come after us, especially during the pandemic? And then Peter asked, especially on this Good Friday, What does it mean that Jesus bore our shame on the cross? The cross was not only painful, but especially shameful. Uh, Such that Bonhoeffer said, quote, the meaning of the cross lies not only in physical suffering, but especially in rejection and shame.
1: We sometimes, when we talk about, we talk about our sin and our shame as like separate entities from what actually happened to Jesus physically. But the shame that he bore was not some abstract theological construct It was born, literally, in that very gruesome way in which he was executed. Again, this sense that God comes and enters into our shame, literally, in the very physicality of a crucifixion. We don't want to think about that, but I want to say that it it is God who says, I'm not going to let anything, I'm not going to let anything Come between you and me. Nothing. Not even your shame. And I'm going to enter into it, join you there, and ask you to pay attention to me, right? When we're all in the cauldron of shame together, I want you to pay more attention to me now than you're paying attention to your shame. And I want to say that as you do that, your shame starts to dissolve. Because you're paying attention to being known by me, being loved by me. And if it's true that we become what we pay attention to. I'm going to become like Jesus if that is what I'm paying attention to. When he looks at the thief and says, today, today, you're with me. I'm with you. He looks at all of us and says, like, today, like, I am with you. Even in the deepest, darkest recesses where your shame wants to hide out. That's where I am. To Michael's question It's difficult then for us sometimes to position ourselves where we can be found. We might be the kind of people who will finish this and pick up the phone and call five people because we want to go find people, because we're active and engaged and relevant. That's all helpful and important and necessary. But we can sometimes look like people who really have everything all together. And one of the things that's difficult for us to do is to find people to say, you know, I've been thinking about this, or I heard this podcast, and I wanna call you because I wanna talk to somebody about something I haven't told anybody. And I'm afraid to, but I'm gonna take a risk and tell you. These These are hard things to do, but we start by calling one person, calling two people, taking a risk. I think that Jesus knows that pursuing intimacy, pursuing this state of being known, pursuing connection with people in order to redeem them, in order for them to be transformed and recommissioned to make beauty in the world is a really, really hard thing to do. And so for us to position ourselves to say, I want to be known by you. This is really hard for me to do. It might take any number of attempts and it's hard to do. Narrow is the gate and few there are that pass therein the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a beautiful, glorious space in which to live, but it's difficult to walk down that path. Evil has no intention of going quietly into the night. And my hope is that even in those spaces where we've tried and found it to be difficult to position ourselves, to allow ourselves to give our shame to Jesus, to allow our shame to be fully healed and understand, because Good Friday is all about shame being dissolved because God won't let that stand between him and us. Those are really, really good words for us on this good Friday, but also words that I need the presence of other people to remind me of, because otherwise it'll be easy for me to forget the story in which the Bible tells us that we're living.
0: Kurt, as we wrap up, I want to give you the last word to share, whether it's a final thought, a benediction, a source of delight, what have you, as we wrap up.
1: This is the word that comes to me. I, am. Uh, In John's gospel, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he does not say, but it's okay. He does not say, don't worry. He says, be of good cheer. He doesn't just say, it's going to be okay. He says actively, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And in that sentence, I hear him once again, drawing his listeners' attention from their tribulation to him. He's not just giving them new information. He's not just giving them a different set of facts. He's not saying that COVID-19, we're gonna be fine. You're not gonna lose any friends. We just don't know that. What he's saying is that this is a hard world. I love you so much that if you're paying attention to me, amazing, beautiful things are going to emerge even in this space that is so hard to live in. And so to our listeners, I would say, it is a time of tribulation and it's the world we live in. But be of good cheer, because our King is coming.
0: Kurt, it's always a pleasure and a joy to talk with you. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.